Well, morning, everybody. Pull out your uh, message notes you were handed on the way in the door. We're in this series we're calling Shalom, and we've been attempting to address three kind of core questions. What is the good life? Who is a good person? How do you experience the good life and become a good person? Psalm 23 has been our anchor text, and Jesus has been our master teacher, the Jesus that Brene was just talking about, the Jesus who is loving and strong and good and generous, the Jesus who says, hey, um, you can come to me and I'll teach you how to live. You can take my yoke up because everybody has to learn how to live from somebody. We don't come into this world with all the answers. You've got to learn how to live from somebody. And the amazing invitation of the Christian life is Jesus can teach you how to live. And he is good. And he is loving. And he is strong. And he is generous. And the word we've attached to this kind of a life is the Hebrew word shalom. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means the way things are supposed to be. Shalom. And the pathway to the shalom life is to understand the person in its wholeness. When you get linked up with Jesus, you're going to find that Jesus is addressing the whole person. So the diagram at the top of your notes is intended to represent the different components of personhood. That at its core, we have a will. We have a capacity to choose, to do good or evil, to say yes or no. You have a will. And then you have a mind, which embodies your thoughts and your feelings. It's the way you're conscious of things. Your will chooses to freely exercise where you place your thoughts. Do you know that reveals a lot about your character? Like we have the freedom to choose what we think about. Probably the greatest freedom we have in this life is what you're going to think about. And what your thoughts drift to, what you're conscious of, where you place those thoughts is a window into your character. So you have a will, you have a mind, and you have a body. So your body is your physical presence in this world. It's the way we relate to one another. The, the body is, is how you outsource things in this life. Like when you learn how to speak a language or tie, the sh tie your shoes or you drive a car, you eventually train the body to kind of do things without the will and the mind engaged very much. So the body kind of just does what the body does. There was a time when you were learning how to brush your teeth when you were younger, and then the body was eventually trained. And now when you got up this morning and brushed your teeth, you didn't give a lot of thought and you didn't engage your will very much. You just, the body did what it was trained to do when it got up and got about the morning. So you have a will, you have a mind, you have a body, and then the incorporating element to all of this is you have a soul. Your soul is like the operating system of your personhood. Your soul is what integrates all these other components into a whole life. So your soul takes your will, your intentions, takes your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, the way you're conscious of things, takes your body, your physical behavior and actions, and it weaves all of that together into what we call a person, a single life. 
So you are not a body with a soul. At your core, you are a soul who has a body, a mind, and a will. And that's why the single most important thing about us as people is who we are becoming. Do you know what we're going to take into eternity? We are not going to take our body into eternity. Hallelujah, some of you are saying. You are going to leave this body behind. It's a wonderful body. We're thankful for our bodies. But it's not going on for eternity. All you got to do is look in the mirror about every day or so. Every year that rolls by, you go, this body is fading away. What are you going to take into eternity? It's the kind of person you have become. It's your soul. As Dallas says, you're an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That is who you are. You are not what you do. You are not what you have. You are not what others say about you. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That is who you are. That is your soul. That's why soul work, who you are becoming, is the most central work of this life. Because that is what you're going to take into eternity. Your soul. So the question we've been living with over the last week is, how are things with your soul? Have you been thinking about this week? I hope you have. How are things with your soul? Well, the story we're going to look at from Jesus today is another way Jesus does soul work in our lives. If you haven't noticed this with Jesus, uh, the quicker you grasp this, the, the smoother the relationship's going to go. Is Jesus is always going to be pecking around at things related to the soul, the operating system, the integrating element. He's going to want to know what's going on in the inmost place and paying attention to the health in the inmost place because his vision for our life is shalom. He wants us to live whole. He wants us to live complete. He wants things as they're supposed to be. You cannot go on the shalom journey without learning how to care for your soul well. So the story we're looking at today is in Luke 12, and it's a parable. One of the ways Jesus does soul work is he tells stories. Everybody likes a good story, right? And Jesus would tell these stories, and sometimes he had told over 30 of them in the Gospels. And he would tell a story, and the people listening to the story wouldn't even necessarily realize all the connecting the dots to the story until a little bit later on. I always like to think of them as like a little time bomb. And it goes off like a few hours later. They're sitting around the dinner table and they go, that story, that was me and this and that. Jesus is amazing. He's the best teacher to ever live, the wisest and the best. And so when he tells a story, I kind of sit up a little straighter in my chair. The Bible calls them parables. It comes from the Greek word para and bale. Para means alongside, and bale is where we get our word for ball, to toss. Jesus tosses a real kind of everyday life story alongside a, a truth that he'd like to talk about the soul with. So here's parable he calls the rich fool, Luke 12, verse 16. Jesus tells them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, 
your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Verse 21, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. I'd like you to circle in your Bibles the word myself in verse 19. Do you know that's the, it's the Greek word for soul, suke. It means the essence of a person. So you could translate verse 19, and some of your Bibles may say this. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of good things. That's one way to translate. And then circle verse 20, the word life in verse 20. This very night, your life, same word, suke, soul. Your soul will be demanded from you. So this is a parable about the neediness of the soul. The soul is an incredibly needy element of our personhood. You could classify it as relentlessly needy. It was Kent Dunnington, a professor at Biola University, he, put, he puts it this way. We are limited in every way but one. We have unlimited desire. And if we will trace the neediness of the soul, if we'll trace the trail of the neediness of the soul, it's going to lead us home to the only one that can quench what the deepest thirst is longing for. And that's what this story is about. Because it's the nature of the soul to need. Have you noticed that? We're kind of a relentless creature of always desiring more. More time, uh, more money, more relationships, more victories, more experiences, more, more beauty, more, 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 more. In this story, it's more barns, more crops, bigger barns. It's the parable of the neediness of the soul. Listen to how John Ortberg puts it when he talks about this. I put this quote in your notes. The soul's infinite capacity to desire, hear this, is the mirror image of God's infinite capacity to give. What if the real reason we feel like we never have enough is that God is not yet finished giving? The unlimited neediness of the soul matches the unlimited grace of God. So there's these, there are these longings that God's hardwired in the soul. And the longings run so deep that they won't be satisfied with anything less than their true home, than shalom life, than the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Next sentence, he restores my soul. Until your soul finds the good shepherd in the yoke of Jesus, it will consistently experience in this life disappointment. Have you noticed this about life? Even the best of things in this life, there's an aftertaste of disappointment somewhere in them. You can have the greatest marriage in the world. Do you know the greatest marriages in the world are not going to satisfy the deepest crevices of the soul? Never intended to. You can have a wonderful family life, great kids, as great as your kids are doing. You know it's really not gonna quench the deepest longings in the soul. A great career. You can have a wonderful accomplishments and achievements at work. As great as all those things are, there's still gonna be some unsatisfied, some unmet expectation. What is all of that about? 
that God has shaped inside a human person, a soul that is so needy that only God's infinite capacity of goodness and love and grace can match the relentless desire of the human soul. Do you see that? So if we'll trace the neediness, the trail of neediness in the soul, if we'll stay with it long enough, if we won't hear this, settle for less than God's best, settle less, settle for less than shalom life, then we'll eventually find what we're looking for. What happens in this life is we get hijacked in all kinds of things, right? You can settle for life with a broken soul, with a less than integrated life. You can settle for things along this trail. You go, you know what? I'm gonna look for uh, work, family, relationships, money, bigger barns, more barns, bigger crops. It's not just enough for the rich fool to have a great year with lots of zeros and commas. His business year got more zeros and more commas. And so what did he decide to do? He says, hey, soul, let's do this. Let's build bigger barns. Because in his idea, the rich fool's idea, more is the pathway to shalom. He's almost right. It's not more stuff in the barns as a pathway to shalom. It's continuing on the trail of more of what the soul is truly looking for. You gotta find its true home. And God's intent was always that the soul orbit around himself. He created the soul in such a way that it can't like function on its own, just kind of worshiping itself. It's always looking for something else to quench and to deal with its longings. And the Bible has a term to describe this. So all through the scriptures, if you read the Bible for any length of time, you'll notice God has a lot to say about idolatry. And you go, what's up with all this idolatry talk in the Bible? Here's what it's the core of the idolatry issue. It's God saying to us as a human race, you're looking in all the wrong places to all the wrong people and all the wrong things to satisfy what only I can do with your soul. So when you look to something besides God to quench the deepest desires and longings of the soul, the Bible has a term for that. It's called idol. Timothy Keller calls idol a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. A good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. Work is a good thing. But when you make work an ultimate thing, it's an idol. Marriage and family life, good thing. But when your marriage and family life becomes an ultimate thing, it's an idol. Ministry is a good thing. When ministry becomes the ultimate thing, it's an idol. Caring for your physical body, that's a good thing. But when you care for your physical body as the ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. So when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that's an idol. And God says, hey, when you're tracing the trail of the neediness of your soul and you're looking to all the wrong places, the scriptures call this the inherited sinful condition of the human being. This is what we come out of the womb like. So we come out of the womb with a bent towards looking to everyone and everything but God to quench the thirst of the soul. A.W. Tozer describes it as God's wired the temple of the human heart in such a way that he is to reign unchallenged there. And whatever's jockeying for position of that temple and that throne is what the scriptures would call an idol. Not about you, but I'm not very good at identifying what my idols are. I need some help on idol identification. So John Ortberg, an author I really like, he wrote a little kind of like, idol assessment and a little grid, and I put it up here on the screen for you, and you just kind of 
take this assessment along with me. Just kind of picture them as mental checkboxes if any of these might point to an idol that's rummaging around in the temple, jockeying for position of the throne. I think about money a lot, as in getting more of it. I have a mental wish list of the things I'd like to buy if money were no object. I wish I had more power and control over others. It seems as if my kids and spouse don't respect me enough and ditto at work. I know I would handle it carefully. I would just like to be a more powerful person. I am constantly preoccupied with how my kids are doing. My emotional state swings with how I perceive things are going at home. I spend a lot of emotional energy worrying and I often come across controlling. I have desires that I prefer not to have my spouse know about. If I am confronted by any of those desires, I become defensive and try to justify it. Aside from my family and others I love, there are things in my life that if they were lost or destroyed, it would crush me. When I'm not forced to think about something specific, where do my thoughts drift? If you asked my family or maybe people who who know you well, what's what's most important to me? They would say, I love God and I want to more closely follow him, but there is one thing that always seems to get in the way. And it's, for the rich man, it was financial security. Just going to build bigger barns, stock them with more crops, and that was going to jockey for position in the temple of the soul. He was convinced more was the pathway and the ticket to the shalom life. And Jesus says, watch out. Watch out, you can actually get into the place where you're so stockpiled with things in this life that you're bankrupt for the things of the life to come. And our lingo for this series, what? You can be so stockpiled with what you are doing that you're bankrupt with who you are becoming. And who you are becoming is what you're gonna take into eternity. Jesus said, watch out. And he uses a word he calls, that's a really foolish way to approach life. It's really foolish to just stockpile things for the 70, 80, 90 years here, and to lose complete sight of the one thing you're gonna take into eternity, the kind of person you are becoming, and it's your soul that's calling out and longing for its true home. So I'd like you to kind of think about a soul as a sponge. And when we're born... The soul is dry, barely hardened. But the sponge knows it's made for something more than just staying in this condition. So as you get a little bit older, the sponge of your soul starts reaching out to all kinds of things to absorb because it knows it needs more than just this dry, kind of shriveled up, crusty condition. So in the early years, right, you're... You head off to school and you begin to look at academics or athletics or artistic achievements and accomplishments. And the soul's like this, it's absorbing machine. It's like a vacuum that's 
just going to suck things into it, say, I'm going to look for accomplishments and achievements. And then it moves into affirmation and approval of peers and to look, just trying to get more. The soul is looking for some things. It's longing. It's trying to absorb some life beyond itself. And then you get a little bit older and you're thinking about college and you think, if I can just get to the right college, the right degree, get on the right career path, with the right salary level and the right promotion, with the right group of people, and oh, then along the way it becomes, I've got to find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. Oh, when I just meet that right person, you see the soul just, just absorbing it all along the way. And then of course, when you meet Mr. or Mrs. Right and you begin to, oh, it's kids, it's family life. And then you realize, wow, there's a lot of things Right Then the soul's really put into overdrive because you're looking now, not just to one, now you're dealing with lots of souls under the roof. And oh my goodness, all these sponges just, some of you are like, how this is describing my home. I'm just like a table, a household full of these sponges just leaning, looking for life and life. And then you think somewhere along the way, you think, I know what I need. I need to get involved with ministry stuff. I need to do something for God's kingdom. And you just look, yeah. Like serving God. Do you know serving God can be one way the soul reaches out and tries to quench what it's really looking for? As a pastor, one of the, one of the more sad slash difficult conversations I'm privileged to have at times is to sit beside the bedside of someone who's elderly, getting close to death's doorstep, and we sit and we talk about the soul. And when the tears can roll down the cheek, as the body's fading away, and I get to listen to a, a bit of a confessional about how they've stewarded this neediness, this relentless desire of the soul and how they've longed and looked for to quench it and all these things and even at the end of their physical bodies fading away and their, their soul just is, feels a little dry, it feels a little shriveled, it's not, it's not shalom. And there's a tone of regret and there's a lot of conversation about if only. But I'm so grateful to be able to sit there even at the last week or month or year of someone's life to be able to sit there and communicate, but you're, you're still not done. Like, if you're not dead, you're not done. You got a little bit more in the tank here. Let's talk about what you could experience, what this absorbing sponge of a soul inside of you has always been looking for. Let's talk about that. And what an incredible moment to watch even the most elderly among us come to find at the end of the run what they were looking for the whole run. Because Jesus says, here, here's what you gotta understand about soul care. That what this soul's always been looking for, it's always been looking for John 7. If anyone is thirsty, what does Jesus say there in John 7. Let him come to me and drink, and streams of living water will what? Flow from within him. So here's what I want you to get a picture of. 
Here the intent of the soul was never to be able to find the full measure of absorption in the life, in this life, in the here and now. There's not enough relationships, not enough career accomplishments, not enough of any of the things we would look to pursue. There's not enough of that to satisfy what this soul's looking for. What this soul is looking for is God. It's the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls this right here, the Bible calls this regeneration. When you have life of God come into the soul from beyond you and saturate and drench your life with his life, it comes to life. This is where the trail of neediness was always supposed to point. This is why the depth of desire is so strong. Do you see how God hardwired it? He wired it so strong that nothing less than this would accomplish it. Only this. The stream of living water. Simpson, this is what your soul has been looking for. When you walked that aisle and you thought Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so was gonna be your stream of living water, shortly after the honeymoon, you realized, well, that ain't working out so well. And then you go to the family life center and you have a baby and as joyful and wonderful as those opening weeks of having a baby, it doesn't take long. And you go, whoa, that's not, that's not gonna work. You think, well, add another one. <laughs> and another one. And then sadly, you think, well, it's just, uh, I'm gonna just, Change spouses, change families, uh, change careers, change churches, change cities, change. What is all that about? It's this. It's this relentless sponge of a soul that's longing for what? What it's longing for. Jesus said, hey, this is what it's longing for. It's longing for this. Spirit of the living God, come, come. Streams of living water will flow from within you. And what's the next part of the verse say? This is my spirit. You see, the living water's always been his spirit. The soul's been made to find its true home, centered on, orbiting around the God who gave it life. And then when it finds that true home, here I wanna give you an image of discipleship in the Christian life. Here's the image of discipleship. You ready for it? All of this or all the relational worlds around you. This is your family, your career, all the, your ministry, all the things around you. What is it's most needed here? What's most needed here? This, right here. See, this isn't a one and done thing. What does Ephesians 5 say? Be filled with the Spirit. The verb tense there is what? Be continually filled. You know what that means? Here's a Christian life. Here's a Christian life. You go, you go to God, you pour it, you say, oh, Spirit of the living God, come and fill my life. And then you know what? Then your life gets wrung out. This is what your spouse needs. This is what your kids need. This is what your career needs. This is what your relationships need. They need the living water poured out upon them. They certainly don't need more of me and you. Your home front does not need more of you. Your home front needs this. It needs a living water of Christ's spirit living in you and then what? Flowing through you. And so then this is it. This is how discipleship works. You keep going back to the source of living water. You get your life drenched and saturated and then you wring it out for his glory. 
As a pastor, this is an image for me, for you, in pastoring a church. This is what this body needs. It doesn't need more of me. It needs this. And you keep going back, and you keep going back, and your life keeps getting wrung out, and living water needs to flow from, with, from within it. But what's the struggle? Huh. You don't have to live much life to figure this one out. You can get to stretches where you're like, oh, my marriage right now needs, you're just, uh, please. You sit beside, you're sitting across the table with a teenager and you're like, oh, my parenting, my, oh. You're headed into a situation at the office and the career front and, if you're leading a team of people at the office and you've got people around the table looking at you and you're like, oh. Or some of you leading ministries and trying to do things for the kingdom and multiply yourself for his glory, serving and leading and, oh. You're like, This, this, you live like this long enough, this is where exhaustion sets in. This is the, our lingo culturally would be burnout. This is a picture of burnout. You just keep this, and, and you keep going everywhere, and it's like, oh, your soul needs to be able to produce, needs to be able to have some life flow out of it, and there's just nothing left in here, and you just keep like this, and you go long enough like this, I listed a whole sequence of things on your notes. Out of my own personal confessional to all of you there, say, so, hey, there's the markers of a dry and withering soul that way. Like when I'm more easily irritated, when I'm more easily discouraged, when I'm tempted to withdraw from others, when I, when I lack having patience with the difficulty others are going through, when I'm tempted to kind of indulge the sinful nature and escape his sins, what is all that pointing to? It's pointing to this, that your soul is still longing and it's, you're just trying to wring it out and you know others need the life of the stream of living water, but there's nothing left in there. The discipleship process gotten hijacked somewhere. And then, what do we do then? Jesus would say, hey, uh, come back. And get drenched again. That's why it's not a one and done thing. Be continually filled with my life. This is what it means to be a disciple. So, how are things with your soul? Learning how to care well for the soul is absolutely essential to experiencing a good life becoming a good person, shalom, not just a, something we talk about on Sundays, but actually a lived reality, soul care. And the triangle I put at the bottom of your notes is kind of a, it's a little image for us. It'll be a, a kind of a pathway forward for us. And what are we gonna do with all this? Well, today we're just trying to give you a picture of Jesus's one of the three prongs of soul care in that triangle is the Holy Spirit. You can't care for your soul on your own. That might be life lesson number one. If you're trying to deal with this on your own, there's the first thing to abandon. You can't deal with it on your own. That's a sure pathway into just, this thing's gonna be wrung out completely bone dry. 
But what it's really looking for is Holy Spirit. There's gotta be the stream of living water. The beginning point of soul care comes right here. This is the role of the Holy Spirit in caring for the soul right here. And then next week, we're gonna get into what about the everyday life circumstances we're thrust into? Specifically next week, I wanna talk about the dark night of the soul. What do you do when you hit those places where you find yourself suffering in the silence of God and what is he doing with that in this soul? And then two weeks from now, we're gonna have a discussion about the role of spiritual practices in caring for the soul well. Because you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That is who you are. You are not what you do. You are not what you have. You are not what others say about you. Is this is what you're gonna take into eternity. Which wisdom says to me, uh, we do well to figure out, hey, how do, how do I partner with Jesus in, in caring well for this?